What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin, inventing Anna Swagger. What's going on, man? It is not Wayne Jenkins Day, my guy. Oh, Terrible no. stuff coming out yeah. of the uh, You know, there's some good things from the Emmys. Some not good things from the Emmys. Uh, we'll be talking about that, as well as uh, a bunch of uh, releases from artists all over the spectrum today. A few shows that we're excited are back, and one that recently wrapped up, as well as another MCU movie for the year. So, uh, if you enjoy what we talk about, or you want to hear more of it right when it drops, hit that subscribe on YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod. Or go to our Twitter at NostalgiaPod, and you can find our link tree there, which has a link to all the different podcast platforms we are currently on. Follow us on all of them. Dave, getting back to the Emmys real quick, though. Yeah, like you said, um, in our preview last week, we said HBO never campaigns for David Simon projects. So we weren't getting our hopes up for this, but Bernthal definitely being deserving of an Emmy. I I think there were some that... I came away, I was like, man, Himesh Patel for Station Eleven. That's a pleasant surprise. Like, I'll, I'll take the wins where I can. But I was really just struck by how strong Hulu's push was in the, uh, I guess, just like limited anthology yeah. series category. Like, they got a lot more love than I suspected they would. Yeah, um, Hulu came in third place overall. 58 nominations, of course, Netflix and HBO leading the way as they do every year hbo actually beat netflix without the help of hbo max hbo proper 108 to netflix is 105 if you include hbo max hbo is at 140 um hulu 58 apple 51 disney 34 amazon 30 and then the broadcast networks show up so kind of business as usual at the front there but yeah hulu um i think it's just where they succeeded Pam and Tommy being a big winner for them under the banner of heaven, only a few nominations. I definitely would have swapped those if it was up to me. Totally. Yeah. And you mentioned at the top, inventing Anna, getting a lot of love, Julie Garner, double nom, <laughs> acting nom as a result with Ozark. But it it's it really hurts to see inventing Anna and Pam and Tommy both get in when we own the city and station 11 aren't like, you know, it's like if one show I didn't like, is in there, gets campaigned really hard, whatever. I'm used to that. But two, two, how can we have two? There's so much good TV. Uh, we got to lose the group think, and the group think is no more present than in a lot of the big acting categories. I mean, White Lotus getting eight acting nominations across supporting actor and actress limited series. That's just absurd. I love the White Lotus. It was on my top 10. It's an amazing show. But after Jennifer Coolidge and, and Murray Bartlett, I was very content to see no one else get nominated because, again, there's so much else to pick from. Spread the love. That level of nomination, like, it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, honestly, because, again, there's so much choice. And it, I think they just got to do a better job of forcing the voters, the Television Academy, which, of course, is so broad, so vast and broad, force them to, like, make strict number of nominations and then they'll maybe spread it around more but it just feels like these popular shows that get campaigned are gonna rise up and they just get their whole ensemble gets nominated succession something that's very deserved basically everyone except alan ruck nominated you know look at the guest actor uh category where they also ran it up you know it's just mm-hmm. there's just a bunch of series this can really 
uh, tack on there. And it just sucks that like stuff that gets completely ignored as a result. Yeah. Yeah. To your point about the, uh, the eight acting nominations for the white Lotus, um, there are, I think seven total for supporting actress on limited, limited or anthology series or movie five are from, from white Lotus, two are from dope sick. <laughs> and then you look at the, uh, the supporting actor in an anthology or limited series, and you have three from White Lotus, three from Dope Sick, and one from Pam and Tommy. That's just a travesty for that category, which was we talked about was like incredibly stacked this year to have that few uh, shows represented in those categories. Just an absolutely terrible job by the Academy in that in that sense. Um, you know, it, it wasn't all bad though I, there like i mentioned i was really pumped to see himesh patel get there i I've, just even starting right from the top um some of the shows that got recognized in like the best comedy series we get what we do in the shadows there abbott elementary uh, a show that we yeah. talked about being on the outside that got in there um you know at the the locks all got in there but that that's okay and then in limited series i think other than the one you mentioned inventing Anna and Pam and Tommy, like those, those three that we mentioned were all really worthy. The dropout dope sick and the white Lotus. I think dope sick probably uh, is on favor to win there, but um, you know, did anything else stand out? I mean, I'm looking through like Zendaya basically won. like that. No one's going to be her in that category that was nominated. Um, Squid game got a few nominations, which, you know, it's always good to see that representation, especially since, uh, we can get Pachinko in there. Yeah, so that this makes Squid Game the first primetime Emmy nominee for a non-English language series in, in a lead series category. 14 total nominations for Squid Game. Uh, the whole the whole cast, main cast uh, represented there, even a guest actor for, um, I forgot her name, the one who was uh, in tandem with Ho-Yun in the Marbles episode, who obviously mm. had a, made a huge impression there. Love, love the looks for Squid Game here. Uh, God of Writing recognition as well. Imagine um, Zendaya, now a five-time Emmy nominee. At age 25, she's the youngest uh, woman nominated for producing and the youngest two-time lead acting Emmy nominee ever. Um, the Zendaya hype, obviously, is well-earned. Everyone knows that at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, like shocks, you know, I mean... You knew there would be group thing. It's just more about like the, the the extreme nature of it that can be frustrating, but it doesn't like come out of nowhere, I guess. And like, you know, you wanted John Bernthal, and it's like, ah, Sebastian Stan getting in there instead, just kind of, kind of tough. But um, I, I think the biggest the biggest shock of anything is probably Yellowstone getting nothing. Yeah. You know, um, if you look at drama series, which on on its face is basically all the favorites. Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession, and Yellow Jackets. You would have thought uh, Yellowstone could get in there. And it was more of a meritocracy. It would certainly get in there over, like, say, Ozark, which was not a well-liked final season. But overall, that's, like, a pretty pretty chalk drama series slate of nominees. But Yellowstone is the most popular show on on TV. And to have it get no recognition it's also well liked it's not like it's some terrible show you know um it's just kind of frustrating to see that because abbott elementary is the only main series nominee that's on a broadcast network at all you know um and yelson would would have been representing cable here like it just 
it just feels a bit like out of touch to not recognize a popular, very popular show that is also well liked. And that's basically what happened in Yellowstone here. Three seasons, three, three seasons, four seasons in, and it's just getting overlooked like this. Yeah, and it's very Emmys, right? To to kind of make a show like this with as widely acclaimed, kind of pay its dues. And speaking of paying its dues, we finally get the Rhea Seahorn nomination, which is fucking sick and yep. very excited to talk about uh, her and as we do our Better Call Saul season six, part two review a little bit later. But, um, you know, there were other, a couple other nominations I was excited to see and some that kind of had me scratching my head. Um, you know, always good to see Kieran Culkin get recognized, but also getting Matthew McFadden is nice. A lot of succession love here. I mean, <laughs> a lot of Jay Smith Cameron, you called yeah. that one. Got Braun. the nom. Braun. But even that supporting actor category, um, it, it's kind of crazy that, uh, sorry, I was looking at the comedy series. Just wanted to say here, Ted Lasso getting three. That, that's terrible. Again, terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, but going back to Abbott Elementary, getting some love here, kind of being anointed that like, um, you know, cable television darling, so to speak, yeah. for the next few years, it seems. Uh, Quintana. Um, what's her, is her last name? Quinta Brunson. Yes, Quinta yes. Brunson. Creator yes, and then Tyler, um, Tyler James Williams also yes. getting... Nominated. I was a surprise. That's a great look there. Uh, of course, I feel like burst on the scene way back in the day, but everybody hates Chris. It's really cool to see this kind of second half, second uh, stage of his career recognition in this way on a hit show. That, that's really cool. And uh, seemingly taking the uh, the Keenan spot too, which yeah, is right. Just surprising from SNL on the male yeah. side. What else stood out to you? Well, you were mentioning succession nominations. I think we really just need to hammer home the deepness of the guest actor nominations guest actress they had hope davis sana lathan and harriet walter and then guest actor they had adrian brody james cromwell arian moyad and alexander skarsgård <laughs> so that's one two three four five six seven guest actor nominations for succession like i'm sorry it's just it's just getting getting way too much and i love yeah. i love all those performances but like sana lathan it's like barely on the show <laughs> and <laughs> James Cromwell definitely had a much smaller presence this season than he did in the past. Like, we, we don't need to give all the East people recognition here when there's so many other great choices to pick. But, like, I, I think it's it's a bit disheartening to see, like, so few shows get recognized in categories in this way. Um, because it, cause this is avoidable if you just go about the nominating in a different way. Alaska. Yeah. I know. It, it's hard because I, I think to take a television series which unlike movies uh you know rely on people kind of coming in and out of the story following multiple storylines to carry seasons but that are much longer you, you want to acknowledge these performances as they kind of pop in and out of these seasons but it almost feels like there needs to be like a two actors from a show per category or something like that moving forward because it's it's ridiculous that we had five for White Lotus, you know, three for Ted Lasso. It, when it's just, it's just not what you want to see. I didn't even realize this before, but if you look at guest actress, an actor for comedy series, this time it's dominated by Hacks, Jane Adams, Harriet Sampson Harris, Laurie Metcalf, and Caitlin Olsen, all in, in guest actress. And then on the male side, you have Christopher McDonald, who I feel like was barely in Hacks season two, like. It's just, just, just a bit disheartening. That's all. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I didn't even like think this was. I didn't. I, this wasn't even on my radar. But a few posthumous nominations: Jessica Walter, mm. um, Christopher McDonald. Sorry, no, Norm McDonald, Jessica Walter, and Chadwick Boseman for his voice work on What If. Didn't see that one coming. Didn't see that coming either. But no, I, I, I don't mind the move. Um, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I'm just, I'm just kind of scrolling through the nominations here, and uh, I think the other thing that stands out is Killing Eve. Still getting love, like yeah, <sighs> that was it. Those are the only two nominations. Yeah, uh, Sandra O oh and Jodie Comer once again getting nominated for a derided final season of Killing Eve. Again, just kind of like penciled in because I liked them in the past. Kind of lazy voting is what that yeah, feels like. Exactly. There's, there's so much choice. Um, yeah, uh, Julia Garner and in Inventing Anna, not even a good performance, but. Emmy voters remember liking uh, Julie Garner in the past for Ozark, so we're going to like her again. Like It's just bad process, in my opinion. Uh, when we talked about comedy series, we didn't really think about Curb Your Enthusiasm all that much. Curb got in. Atlanta, which was a polarizing season, Atlanta season three, did not get a series nomination, just uh, on the acting side. So that, that, was a, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Um, again, my, I didn't watch curb this season and people loved it. That might be the uh, like funniest show on here, I guess. Cause I was just looking and it's like, again, a lot of these are not really comedies. Uh, what we do in the shadows is actually probably the funniest show on there and hopefully right. wins, but, um, it seems Dead like it's boringly. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if Abbott won, that'd be pretty, pretty nice. That would be cool. Uh, Abbott seems, uh, to be kind of the, uh, the darling here a bit almost kind of taking the route that like blackish took a few years back as well right speaking of blackish uh tracy ellis ross anthony anderson no recognition for the final Mm -hmm. season they've been in there times before uh also this is us no mandy moore no sterling k brown for that final season which apparently was very well liked uh Mm -hmm. we mentioned pachinko no love at the top Issa Rae getting nominated yep Issa Rae for the final season but insecure not in series uh categories um yeah I, I think oh i think the one of the bigger surprises just one-off surprises for me was uh limited series actress no jessica chastain for scenes from a marriage um not the biggest deal in the world she did just win an oscar so uh, she, i think she can deal but that did surprise me a little bit um we're gonna be talking about the emmys as they get closer but uh september 12th leave us your thoughts on who should have gotten in who, which, which nominations are the most egregious? Give us all your thoughts on that to music here now. Where we we got to a bunch of K-pop releases this weekend. However, I did not get to this one. So Dave's going to be flying solo talking about Espa. That's right. Espa dropped their second mini album slash EP. You know how K-pop loves to call stuff mini albums. But I always laugh that Wikipedia calls everything an extended play still because that's the official definition. Nonetheless, we talked about Espa's uh, debut single album when it came out last year, Savage. And now they're back again with another short short taster here. Nine songs, 30 minutes. Seven of these songs are, are new. Uh, kind of perplexingly, their debut single, which was not on that first album, that debut single, Black Mamba, was now included on this new second album girls that kind of made me surprised don't know why they did that but that's cool and uh yeah i think um if you remember we talked about espa last time around as a brand new quartet in k-pop on sm entertainment the biggest k-pop label there's a lot of um 
expectations put on a group in this standing. And if we remember, I think the two biggest takeaways when we listened to Savage, and I think that uh, that title track, Savage, was definitely a big pop, uh, big K-pop banger for sure. I think the two biggest takeaways were, one, that the production was notably more modern, more synth-heavy, not as uh, more traditional K-pop sounding of the past generations with more electronic feel, definitely more more modern production styles. And also they had a very heavy focus on uh, the metaverse and these like virtual avatars, uh, doppelgangers for our four members in ESPA. It was like a big component of their performance and their uh, music video visuals and things along that line. And that was a huge thing about the group. And, you know, moving forward, I didn't really have any like huge expectations for them because they're clearly just like a brand new group. They're, they're K-pop rookies as it were. And I think that that feeling of newness still kind of carries over into girls. And if I think if you watch some of their performances, notably they did perform on Jimmy Kimmel, they did perform uh, in Central Park on Good Morning America. You want, and of course, re- more recently or, or, or uh, in the past, but recently they performed at Coachella as part of the 88 Rising set. Um, and all that being said, I still think they're like a bit, a bit green, a bit, a bit stiff when it comes to the perf- uh, live performance side of things. There's been a big talk online about how they do lip sync quite a lot, which is not uncommon, but it still feels like they're kind of getting those sea legs back. So, you know, I don't know if this this album kind of like changed my opinion on them. It just feels like the second step in this like early career for Espa. And, you know, not that there's not, uh, I think, highlights on here. The title track, Girls, like the last title track, Savage. Title track, Girls, is one of those big bangers. Got the music video. Uh, they notably, <clears throat> Ning Ning notably like shouts out the word meta universe in her <laughs> in her part and it's like it's just really funny to me that they're like really like riding this stuff because i'm not a metaverse guy but like i don't know if you need to like put it into your into your content as well the visuals is one thing add-on third-party stuff is one thing but to literally like shout out the meta universe as she puts it it's like that kind of made me chuckle yeah that's that's quite the move um yeah, metaverse is is not something i've seen a lot of people really enjoying so to really like ride for this they're (laughs) Try and be futuristic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, then from there, you have Illusion, which is another kind of banger song. I, I enjoy the flow on that one. I, I enjoyed Lingo. If you look at the track list, they have Life's Too Short, and then they also have Life's Too Short English version, which feels very superfluous to me. If you listen to both songs, the original like, Korean Life's Too Short already has plenty of English, and in general, Espa has plenty of English in their music. I don't see why they needed to like make the full English version you know that, that's also like a very like a much lighter uh track you know it's not like one of the, the banger like in your face songs so I don't know I just it, it felt pretty inviting on its own I don't feel like you need to compromise yourself all that much for western audiences nonetheless that's what they performed at Good Morning America so yeah I think you know it's kind of I think it's still a lot of wait and see with us but because you know they, they, they don't do any of their writing they're still so new into their career it's pretty standard for k-pop um and i don't think lyrically i'm like i have been wowed you know from what the stuff i do here in english or when i read the subtitles so kind of kind of wait and see but like the the bangers that they do have at this point i think are still pretty fun you know if you're a fan of k-pop so uh i'm curious to see how much sm continues to ride 
uh, Espa as a group in the West again, already getting a Coachella look as they have, even though they weren't even part, they're not even part of 88 Rising, but they're still part of that set, you know? I think that's pretty notable. So curious to see uh, how, how big they try and make uh, this group because they're not the, the SM's only female group, of course. But uh, yeah, they're still, they're still kind of kind of new on the scene, it sounds like. Well, uh, we'll be checking with Espa next time that they drop something, a group that we're excited to see where they go. But let's uh, let's switch to another K-pop release. Neon. Neon. Uh, I messed Nyan. it up. Neon. I knew I was going to mess it up. Um, my apologies to Neon, who dropped her, I guess, debut album, a, a member yep. of, of, of Twice, we should say. She's a yes. member of Twice, who actually... Funny enough, I was uh, talking with someone who works security at Barclays Center when Twice performed a few weeks back, and they mm-hmm. said that that place was fucking rocking, dude. Like, Twice mm-hmm. brought the people out, had the energy going. Um, so listening to this album, I'm uh, Neon, 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 Neon. Jeez, I'm going to keep messing this up. I'm Neon. Um, I think I, I get... I mean, I I haven't listened to Twice much, so I can't say that uh, this is like representative of their success. But if this is the kind of music they're putting out, I totally get why that place was rocking because these songs are just a lot of fun. And listening to this, it was hard for me to not just think of Christina Aguilera and that album mm. Back to Basics with like Candyman on it. Like that whole vibe just kind of emanating through this music. What did you think of this this debut record? Yeah, I agree. I definitely like to lie. And we're actually late to this. This came out on June 24th. But because of my positive thoughts, I was like, you know, we should still get to this late because I think this is really uh, worthy of talking about and also stands out in nice contrast to some other K-pop music you might uh, hear. And like you said, I think that the inviting nature of, I think, the lightness of Nyan's songs here it is quite appealing. It definitely has a more summery, uh, bubblegummy, boppy feel. You know, not there's a, there's a banger on here in 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 the lead single pop, but it's yeah. not the traditional K-pop banger with its big electronic production and dance breaks and stuff. You know, and uh, yeah, Nyan, she's the oldest member of Twice, but the first and also the first solo debut to this point. No one in Twice had released even a solo song, and as you mentioned. Uh, they just sold out a huge North American tour. They are a very big group, and they're actually signed to JYP Entertainment, uh, the the fourth, uh, one of the four big four K-pop labels. And we actually haven't talked about any JYP groups or artists before, but yeah, I thought this is this is kind of a nice jumping in point for Twice, which already has a huge discography, of course, but. I also, right off the bat, I appreciate the double entendre with the album title. Of course, I'm Nyan, mm-hmm. you know, introduction, but also, of course, that's her name. Yeah. In Nyan, that's her last name, so her family name. So I, I really appreciate that. Really smart, whoever thought of that. But uh, yeah, I think overall, just I enjoyed a lot of these songs, and, and they just I was found them very inviting overall. Yeah, I mean for k-pop which we've reviewed quite a few k-pop albums to this point and there's there's a wide spectrum of sound there obviously but i think some of the ones that are harder to get into kind of like you just talked about it with Espa, it's when it is trying to do almost too much and this felt like she just went for like 
pretty much pure like American pop in a lot of senses. I mean, the first probably like five tracks up to happy birthday to you, which I was like lukewarm on that track. I think I really enjoyed, but they all feel very familiar. Like they feel like they could be on the the pop charts at any point in the last like three or four years and they would totally fit. And these songs are crafted just like really, really well. And what I was most impressed by is just like her ability to like make these choruses that just stick with you and feel like they just come like out of her mouth in just such a fun way candy floss stands out you know it's just like so simple but that give me that give me that give me that candy floss it's just like it's stuck in your head all day after you listen to it totally i really like the tempo on that song too and candy floss notably co-written by jade Thurwall from little mix Mm. western artist western influence uh yeah it's cool nyan herself actually has two co-writing credits on this seven album so that's something too in her turn and she i think she spoke about this too impressed about trying to you know forge a solo identity it's always a challenge when you're stepping out alongside your group that you're still a part of you know it's like and i think again the title itself is trying to introduce you to this individual who most people who are listening to this are already huge fans of as, as her as part of a bigger enterprise of course which is twice so you know i think that's probably an ongoing challenge but her fans probably don't don't care because they're already on, on the team on, on on board as it is you know um i really enjoyed the second track no problem yeah it, it has like the lightness of track one the lead single pop you know all these inviting qualities these light summery boppy feels and then you have one of her label mates felix of the k-pop boy group stray kids on there and i thought his rap flow was honestly pretty awesome yeah, I agree. No problem. It's probably my second favorite track on here after Pop. Um, Pop, the title track, like you mentioned, a, a pure banger, but uh, that's really the one that calls to mind the uh, Christina Aguilera sound there with the Candyman, the like, bump, 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 with the horns and whatnot. It's all, so great. But yeah, No Problem is really, really just like expertly crafted. I was just so impressed. Like it, like the way that the like, flourishes of like the synths and like the little like percussion like flares that come in and up really feels like it's like taking you up and down but you're always just kind of gliding on her beautiful voice and then you mentioned Felix of Stray Kids comes in and he just has like this like baritone sound that plays so well off her it just sounded really really great those two together so I was I was really impressed with that um yeah I think overall I just left this being really really pleased and uh impressed with this so um i promise to get the name right next time but we're going to be adding a, a, maybe a track or two from this to our nostalgia best of 2022 so definitely check that out but let's keep it moving in the k-pop realm to chung ha and chung ha's um album gave me much different vibes than nyan um did you have the same experience just a different experience with this yeah, Chung Ha's second solo album, Bear and Rare, follow up to last year's Kerencia. Yeah, I think um kind of by by design, by like by the title suggestion, it's almost it's different. Bear and rare. This is like Chung Ha trying to be at her most most vulnerable and most mm-hmm. uh, stripped down. So it's definitely, I think, a different different vibe than something that's probably a lot lighter stakes, like the Nyon album, which is very light and summery and fun. 
And not that the Shanghai album isn't fun. I think there's a lot of like really up tempo tracks on here that I enjoyed. But yeah, I think I think like it's kind of like a, a different uh, lyrical uh, ambition, different lyrical challenge here with this album, which apparently is only part of the album, Baron Rare Part One. We don't know when Part Two is coming out, but this is only eight songs, twenty five minutes. It sounds like more 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 is to come. Karen C. It was like an hour long album last year, so I assume we're gonna get some more here. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you think about this one? If you remember last time we talked about Karen Sia, it was kind of interesting because there was all these other genre influences, uh, particularly like Latin pop influences filtering into the song there. And of course, you still have a traditional K-pop banger at the top. In that case, it was Bicycle. This time around, you know, the song with the music video is Sparkling. And that's definitely like a more bangery intended song, but you know, not as like in your face as some of the other stuff, older stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing is I, I went back and I checked out some of the tracks from Karen Sia that I really liked. And then juxtaposing Bare and Rare, it's just such a, a more stripped down, uh, kind of like you mentioned the title would allude to, just a more probably personal and, and um, trying to really... I think put her put Chung Ha at the center of the music rather than having the the genres and the like heavy production as like the stars of the show, which I think is a good move for her. You know, you don't want to be the person that's just known for being a chameleon in a sense, but I definitely feel like it lost some of the energy to it. Um, I think the first couple of tracks I really liked the uh, XXXX and sparkling were probably two of my highlights um but then after that i kind of found myself feeling like some of the the tracks just didn't have the energy i i I was expecting maybe and i I think that might have hurt my experience with this but i i agree i think overall that this was a a good move for her and i think that in the long run her centering herself in the music rather than the the sonics is a good move um what tracks stood out to you other than xxx and sparkling yeah, well, I am to that point, too. She co-wrote and co-produced all of these songs, so she's definitely very much mm-hmm. intentional about what she's trying to put out in the world here. Uh, yeah, I thought XXXX was cool because, you know, it's a moody song, a lot of bass, but she laying down a little rap on there, which I thought was fun. Mm. Um, and at the last track, Nuh-uh, as well, some hip-hop in there, too. Uh, I really enjoyed Crazy Like You, Featuring BB, who is signed to 88 Rising. Chung Ha's, you know, also signed in the US to 88. Um, but that one was nice. California Dream, though, probably my favorite song. I thought that the high, high tempo nature, just a nice pulsing beat, I thought that was really fun. Mm. And Louder as well, also had a really nice bounce to it. So, you know, if I think of my favorite Chung Ha song is from a few years ago, Snapping. And when I think of like what I like about that, I mean, she's a great dancer. And that, that music video really shows that off. Those performances really show that off. But I feel like that song, the up-tempo nature of the that song really fits with her talent because she can be like non-traditional in that K-pop sphere that we think about, but still like deliver like a banger to you. And that's what I love about Snapping. Honestly, it's one of my favorite K-pop songs, like just period. And I think some of these songs, production side of things, are definitely giving me that same vibe. But lyrically, she's definitely kind of doing an album for her here she said that good night my princess is actually a song about her mother and how mm. she felt about her her family life you know growing up and stuff 
uh, in a positive way primarily, but she, uh, you know, she's trying to get into. So I think, you know, it, it's kind of tough, I think, as an audience uh, listener to, to rec- reconcile that, where it's like the production is definitely giving me what I want, but sometimes the lyric, the vocal performance of the lyrics might be a little uh, guarded or, or, or personal, uh, very personal yeah. as a result, you know? Yeah, intentionally like pulling back a bit to like fit fit the meaning of the song. That makes sense. Um, you know, when I was listening to some of these tracks, something like Love Me Out Loud or California Dream, I, I was trying to think like who was coming to mind, especially in terms of like the production, which is uh, K-pop is always kind of reminding me of like that, like late 2000s, early 2010s pop. And I kind of got like Katy Perry vibes at points, mm, you know, like just kind of like the way she would like rise. She doesn't have the pipes that Katy Perry had, or at least isn't showing them out on this. But like in Love Me Out Loud, there's like a point when like there's just like snaps in her voice. And I'm like, oh, that's that kind of reminds me a little bit of like California Dream, um, California Girl, sorry. Um, so that there's there's definitely some some moments here. Um, I I really appreciate too, like just the the if you like watch on spotify they have like music videos for a lot of these songs that kind of play in the background and she varies it up almost track to track with like something completely different so definitely i definitely appreciate her artistry with this like she had a vision and tried to execute it so appreciate that um any last thoughts are you ready to move on all right let's uh let's move forward to brent fias but again check out our nostalgia best of 2022 brent fias a guy we've been talking about more and more last year uh call me if you get lost and uh the melodic blue baby keem featured songs uh with him on it and you know i i don't know if i would say i was like super looking forward to this drop but i was aware of it and so this is a, a person who is just like growing in terms of like my own consciousness and i think in terms of plays like as someone that doesn't have a a ton of output i mean he has some big singles at this point but you know a couple of like short projects i think he has one like longer mixtape or yeah. I don't know, a bunch of eps and tapes and this is his second album first since 2017 but like you're saying stuff uh, yeah he's he's blowing up fast and he's an independent artist and he's about to go number one as an independent artist off this second album wasteland and like you said, just big, big features, big looks have been coming for a while now. I had the lead single, Gravity, with DJ Dahi featuring Tyler Cater. That was my number two song of 2021. I absolutely love that track. And now we have it here in the album. And you mentioned his feature on Baby Keem. His feature on Lost Souls with Baby Keem is freaking spectacular. <laughs> you know, he yeah, steals the whole song, honestly. And just kind of thinking about like male R&B, we just talked about this last week with Giveon's uh, debut album, Give or Take. Brent's a very different side of the coin, but this album, Wasteland, really impressed me because he is someone who has like really clear goals with his music. And he mm. was literally just spelling this out when he was promoting the album. He's saying, I like to keep the listener guessing. <laughs> when the song starts, I don't want you to know where it's going. And I love that. And I think he really delivers. Not every, not not everything's a ten out of ten, but I think overall he really delivers with this. And it's just really cool to see someone have such an organic, genuine, founded rise on merit with his music. And now it's really going to be paid for because he's just becoming a gigantic star. Yeah, and just for those who may be uh, tangentially aware of him, Lost Souls is 
blew up on TikTok. Another one of those TikTok trends that really took off the six team is cold. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I think Wasteland is very interesting. I, I don't know if I loved it as much as you did necessarily, but I was definitely really impressed with not only his vision on this, but just like the execution. And you talk about that, like keeping you guessing. Um, I mean, this is definitely a, a pretty thoughtful lyrical album and he's definitely trying mm-hmm. to paint uh i think a story here about like the uh i mean one of the tracks literally called the price of fame but <laughs> i think just like how, how fame can corrupt you it can impact your relationships it can make you feel just uh, like detached from parts of your life uh lead you to some not so great things but where it ends up by the end really i was felt like it was unexpected and really like hit home like the i usually don't like skits but i think like the last two tracks skit wake up call and angel really just like kind of hammered home what he's going for for the album and i was just like man th- this felt unexpected like he was going for but really rewarding as you listen through so talk talk to me about like the tracks or the moments on this mm-hmm. album that really stood out to you yeah well i think like you said these skits are very effective in shepherding you through his lyrical goals with this album and the songs fit that as well um i think the subject matter is not unexpected for any fans of brent but in terms of relationships and toxicity within a relationship and just general struggles with that it's all in line with what people expect from his music but the storytelling i think is very paramount however the other side of the coin you can still take away an individual track from wasteland and enjoy it just for what it is it's separated from that general story like he's giving you both sides of it it's a whole narrative within an album and then it's a bunch of fun songs to just revisit in terms of the unexpectedness i heard i think it was the maybe the second or one of the first singles he dropped like recently you know obviously the drake song and, and the tyler song have been out a while mm-hmm. uh, and that song would be price of fame price of fame starts off with a very uh, low tempo distorted pitch on Brent's vocals and it's a fun song so it's you know pretty pretty uh steady bass on it and then you hear this like kind of like the ticking of a clock as we're speeding up the tempo of the song and then you realize that the vocals have actually just been sped up to Brent's actual correct normal pitch meanwhile mm-hmm. the production itself is actually sped up beyond where we're at and like that I thought that, that like those first three minutes of that song were just like spectacular, like spellbinding <laughs> shit, honestly. And then three minutes in, it flips and it's like this like slower like R and B like outro. You know, I was like, the, I, I think the the whole production side in the beginning of that song is really really mind blowing to me. Yeah, I agree. I really love that that like early production and just how like as the track it starts speeding up, you know, everything just kind of becomes clear until there's like this break from it. Like you mentioned into this, like really beautiful, beautifully sung last like three minutes. Um, yeah. What other tracks stood out to you though? I mean, uh, yeah. I, I gotta say at least like lyrically, I think the like stickiest thing to me was probably Jackie Brown. Maybe it's like my relation to the movie, but I think just like that just felt like a song that stood out as like a banger to me on this. Like, it's really like stripped back and kind of like spaced out in terms of the production, but mm-hmm. it allows him and, and that like Jackie Brown uh, reference to just kind of like come to mind. You know exactly what he's going for there too. My old bitch fine like Jackie Brown. 
<laughs> and then later on, it's like a classic Brent line: "Leave me here, I'll fuck myself." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Jackie Brown a lot. I like Ghetto Gatsby a lot. Flying the whip like I'm Gatsby. Um, <laughs> then another one I thought was like a classic, like trademark Brent lyric: "It's new, new face, still not Lauren London, but you're still a dime if you ask me." And then later on, he has Alicia Keys rapping. Brent made a reference track for Alicia Keys and was saying how he intentionally wanted a non-female rapper to do the rapping for him on this song. Again, something you don't expect to hear. Gotta love it. Um, yeah, you know, I kind of like rediscovered the Wasting Time, the song with Drake, on this. I actually think it's like a really kind of like a classic Drake feature, like a classic Drake verse. I really like the subject matter. I think it his lyrics really fit what Brent's going for on this. And of course you have a great quotable of, you know, calculating moves like Beth Harmon, the Queen's Gambit reference. Yeah, I agree. I was actually just kind of like, it felt like a, a throwback Drake uh, verse for sure. I really enjoyed that. And I mean, you mentioned gravity being one of the singles people have probably heard it by now, but that just feels like a, I don't know, like an extra from call me if you get lost in like the best way possible, you know, like it really sure. feels like they're in the same way, but just like the way Brent and Tyler like trade off on that is just really great. And uh, I, it made me go back and listen to Sweet, I Thought You Wanted to Dance and just how much I really love that song still. And that whole album just still rocks. But yeah, I, I was like, there, there's worse things you can do than have a, a track remind you of one of the best albums of last year. So uh, yeah, this was just really impressive. I, I think um, I, I don't know if it's one of my favorite albums of the year but it sounds like it might be up there for you yeah well it's definitely one of my favorite r&b albums in a long ass time to be honest because i think there's to make an r&b album this interesting this um just giving you this much unexpected material and switch ups and and changes and also delivering bangers as well it's giving you everything like i think that's just really commendable and i'm also i'm just really happy for brent fias because again independent artists progressing to this point as he has uh, in a genuine uh, honest way with just the music being good and people liking him, you know, um, obviously you gotta be happy about that. Absolutely. Um, we'll be adding a track or two to our nostalgia best of 2022 on Spotify. So check that out. Let's talk about our guy, Damini though. Love Damini, Burner Boy's most recent album. Uh, just dropped, just dropped this weekend. Uh, we talked about twice as tall back in 2020. One of uh, one of our favorite albums from that year, honestly, right. and, and just such an impressive uh, showing for Burner Boy. Really leveled him up fame wise. Uh, notoriety has gone through the roof, and so very very excited to hear Love Demini. Did you feel like Love Demini lived up to the twice as tall expectations? Yeah, I think that's a good question, good way to put it. I think it really depends how much you listen to Burner Boy. Because these last now three albums, African Giant, Twice as Tall, and I Love Damini, these are the albums that have been out since Burner Boy's become that global superstar that he is back in May, becoming the first Nigerian artist to headline Madison Square Garden. You know, I think Twice as Tall was so revelatory to me and you because I think just the, the uncompromising nature of the Afrobeat music that Burner Boy is giving you. He, he terms it Afrofusion because he's pulling from all these different 
other genres as well as his native Afrobeat, of course, hailing from Nigeria. That was just really revelatory and mm-hmm. amazing songs, but also so, such uncompromising sonics. And I, I think Love Domini, I don't know if it wowed me as much as Twice as Tall did, but you probably can only be wowed in that way once. Depends where when you just listen to him. You know, for a lot of people, it was Yay being that massive song, the biggest song of his career back in 2018. Like, it, it maybe just depends when you get to him, uh, especially as a non-native like, speaker that I am. But I, I still thought there was all, all the things you want to hear from Burna Boy and all, all the things that make him an impressive artist, a unique artist, and make his music, I think, very rewarding to listen to. All that's still here. So even if it's just kind of like more Burnaboy excellence, uh, you know, th- th- there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So I went back and I listened to a lot of the tracks from Twice as Tall, right? Because I, after I listened to Love Domini, I was like, why didn't that hit the same for me? What was it that I felt like it was missing? And, and you might be right. It might be just that the first time you listen to Burnaboy, you're just like, damn. This this guy is incredible, and I still think Love Domini is a really strong album. But I think there's a track on Twice as Tall that fell, I don't want to say flat, but just like did not live up to the expectations I had, which was real life with Storm Stormzy. You know, you you have Stormzy on the track, you kind of expect this to just be like this, like really thumping, like go hard track, and it's kind of more like subtle and smooth, and has these like. Um, I don't know, like these guitars or something in the background, and it's got a jazz influence to it, and you're just kind of like, okay, this isn't exactly what I expected. And I feel like that's kind of more of the vibe of vibe of Love Domini rather than like those first couple of tracks from Twice as Tall, like Alarm Clock or Way Too Big or even Bebo, which are just like those are just straight fire bangers. You're just like mm-hmm. energy up, wine to like jump around, run through a wall. I like the first half of love Domini a lot i think science cloak and dagger kilometer those songs rock but as we get more to like the middle into the back half of the album it's a lot lighter it's a lot more personal a lot smoother hmm. and it's just just doesn't reach those high energy moments that you get on twice as tall and so for me it just kind of left me wanting a little bit more of of the the hard hard songs i guess but mm-hmm. um I, I think another criticism i have of this you know there's a mo there's another feature on twice as tall that we talked about being it felt <laughs> like just like an american grab which is the chris martin feature right sure yeah on this you, you get the ed sheeran feature and i i don't mean to just bag on ed sheeran i actually don't think he's terrible on the track but it just feels like burner boy almost is like moving towards like trying to bring in more and more like american pop friendly leaning features into this album to get it uh, probably more radio play more recognition from people who don't uh, like find his music typically which you can't really blame him for but it does feel a little bit more compromising than twice as tall did in a sense to me so yeah. i i think you that also just have khalid and blast and kalani as well exactly um, you know i think the ed sheeran choice itself it made sense in terms of why he did it to me because uh, one of his contemporaries in the Afrobeat scene out of Nigeria, Fireboy DML, has a huge song right now called Peru, which came out last year. And the Peru remix features Ed Sheeran, and Ed's awesome on it. And that became an even bigger hit than the original version. 
clearly that's what it's going for you know uh-huh. um, stormzy has made music with ed ed himself has proven to be a genre chameleon when he's guesting on other people's music you know whatever you think of ed's solo music i'm definitely not the biggest fan but he he's acquitted himself well as a guest in other people's spaces uh-huh. that's definitely what he was going for but yeah i think partially because that's just a kind of slower softer yeah. song in general which it wasn't as inviting to me and again like i love peru from fireboy dml so much but that's definitely a more upbeat like fun banger song you know mm-hmm. um in terms of uh you know i think a uh, big big name collaborations um you do have pop can on here yep and i thought that was like a really fun sex jam tony and sing yes uh, pop can in particular on that chorus is very catchy and that beat is just really catchy really fun um Jagale, also probably one of the better examples of that Afrofusion uh, uh-huh. moniker because that tempo with those horns definitely reminds you more of like a reggaeton song and Burna Boy putting his spin on that, which is fun. To me, though, the obvious highlight on this whole album and one of my favorite songs Burna Boy's ever released is the lead single, Last Last, hmm. which samples Tony Braxton. <laughs> Listen to both those songs. Um, it's very obvious. Was it um Tony song? Uh, uh, I forget. Whatever. What's the name of that song? The big hit, you guys. Uh, apparently, she gets sixty percent of the royalties because this is a big sample. <laughs> I think that's just like a song of the summer candidate. To be honest, I think it's just a huge, huge banger. I really love it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, man, I really, really, really love this first like, I don't know, five songs after the opening track, Glory, Science. Cloak and Dagger, Kilometer, Jagalay, Whiskey, and Last Last are probably my six favorite songs off the album. Mm-hmm. Maybe you throw in a Common Person if you want to have a slow song on there, because I think that's just a really smooth, really like some beautiful flourishes in that that track. But I think that first half is really great. And then, then you slowly start getting into the features, and I feel like the album kind of loses a bit of momentum there, uh, kind of save for the pop can feature, which you mentioned. I thought uh, Tony on Sing was great. But yeah, I think Last Last is a clear highlight from this. Um, I, I guess like I just kind of think about Burnham Boy's like status in music right now. He's obviously still trending upwards. Um, I've ha- fully suspect this album to outsell twice as tall and continue moving a star forward what do you what do you think you want to see from him going forward do you want to see him like continue to fuse like american pop into these do you want to see him just kind of stick with this afrofusion more yeah that's a good question i mean he african giant and twice as tall both won the grammy for best world music so he in a sense has kind of reached the pinnacle of like what you can do in the confined genre spaces that the Grammy establishment is putting you in right now. And he clearly deserves more than that. And we've seen, you know, on other side of things, like we've seen Bad Bunny just through sheer force of will and popularity and good music, just become a massive artist, period. Not just a massive artist in Latin spaces due to many factors, including his music and, and his personality. I think Burnham Boy can be like that. I'm not saying he can be as big as Bad Bunny. Few people can, but I feel like Burnham Boy has that in him, and he has like yeah. of all the people that have really risen out of Nigeria and, and Western Africa recently, like uh, like Fireboy, DML, Rally Rising, Wizkid, of course, uh, Davido as well. Like 
Bruno Boy is clearly like the guy who has, I think, the biggest crossover potential. And he's already so interested in other sounds, literally mm-hmm. coining a new genre or popularizing it anyway with Afrofusion. I think he should just keep kind of going down that road. And if he keeps making good music, really good music, the rewards will come. Because like we said, the barriers have never been lower when it comes to reaching an audience across the world and finding acceptance across genre lines. We see that in K-pop, we see that in Latin music, we're seeing that in African music. And, you know, I think Brandon Boy should really just keep what he's doing, doing what you're doing. You know, these last couple of albums have been really good for him. And, yeah, I see no reason to continue to compromise yourself. You know, I think um, bringing in guests from the West, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, especially if those songs are still Boy songs. Bring people onto your thing. Don't try and make someone else's thing. Uh, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, the the Grammy win was why I was kind of thinking, like, what's his next move? And especially, like you mentioned, trying to kind of get that Ed Sheeran, like, uh, hype on a song. I, it, it just, like, perked up my, my antenna for this because I, I really love when he just finds a way to mesh these sounds together in such a smooth way that other people can't do. And I agree. I think bad bunny is kind of like, yeah, I think he'll probably be like bad bunny light. I don't know if he'll get to like that status, but like, that's a really, really great lane to be in exactly who I was thinking of. I I wouldn't mind if he maybe worked with some very specific like collaborations moving forward. Like, you know, actually someone like Drake came to mind, Drake, you know, highly criticized for, uh being a chameleon in terms of uh the sounds that he works with and what he goes for but drake likes to experiment with things i mean we just whisk it about this exactly so i wouldn't mind if maybe he had a few collaborations with where drake hopped on if he really wants that like to push his star forward but also have someone that's willing to like play in his sandbox a bit you know something like that so. right i mean you've kind of seen the blueprint for this with the ra- British rapper Dave's song location, yeah. which Burna Boy's featured on. Um, I also really loved the choice to have Jay Huss featured on this album with Cloak mm-hmm. and Dagger because Jay Huss is obviously a British rapper, but Jay Huss himself was always lauded for bringing in Afrobeat into UK hip hop and kind of being a pioneer in that sense. So it makes all the sense in the world for Jay Huss and Burna Boy to make music together. And I'd love to see them do more of that, honestly, because I feel like there's even higher highs that they could reach together. Um, Jay Huss yeah, is I mean, such a cool voice, too. That, like, uh, gravelly, like, I don't even know, smoky voice just comes across so clear. We're due for a new Jay Huss album, for sure. Uh, Big Conspiracy was a few years back at this point. Also, Fireboy DML definitely has an album coming out on the horizon, from what he said. So I'm looking forward to hearing that this year. And we can compare that with this Burner Boy record, because he's someone who very much following in the footsteps of Burner Boy, but also rising fast. So it'd be fun to kind of compare and contrast. Absolutely. Um, we're, uh, we've already put some of these songs onto our nostalgia best of 2022 by the time you're listening to this. So definitely check that out. We're done with music for today. Let's move on to the TV sphere. We're better call Saul season six, part two. Ah, oh, Dave, I just want to say the symmetry in our pictures. If you're watching on YouTube, <laughs> you have Lalo. I have Jimmy and Kim. Uh, just just really fantastic uh, symmetry there. But yeah, season six, episode uh, part two, uh, the end is coming. And I thought the beginning of the second half of the season was just electric. 
dude. I mean, like, I, this was one of those episodes of television where the hour is up and you're like, wait, the, the episode's over? Like, that couldn't have been an hour. It just is so propulsive. Yeah. And really just Gilligan, like, at his very best. Um, uh, just super, super loved this episode. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you had the same experience with this. Totally, yeah. We're talking about episode eight of season six, Point and Shoot, which is a direct follow-up picks up immediately after mm-hmm. the end of episode seven plan and execution which served as our mid-season finale and man i th- i think it's just it's just so effective and when you can comp- compare it with episode that follows these two episodes have just been so effective and also very surprising for what has happened with the plot we now have five episodes to go for the end of better call saul and we wrapped up several lingering plot threads and characters in these two hours now, leaving us five episodes left to accomplish the most important things to the show, which is the Jimmy Kim relationship and the future uh, black and white uh, Gene Omaha Nebraska scenes. So just really exciting because I think they just delivered. They just delivered with these, you know? And yeah. you you wouldn't have thought that Lalo being gone with five episodes to go and Nacho being gone like three episodes into the season, you wouldn't have thought that would have been as effective as it is and has been, but, but that's where we're at. And it's just really exciting. Incredibly exciting. And also I think now that we get Lalo out of the way so early, which I want to talk a little bit about Tony Dalton and where he kind of ends up in the breaking bad Saul universe here. But uh, now we have Lalo, out of the way i think we're going to get a lot more of that black and white post like uh breaking bad stuff than than i originally expected us to i thought maybe we would get like an episode or two of that i think we might get that sprinkled in a lot more moving forward i think obviously there's gonna have to be something that happens between uh Saul and kim jimmy and kim in the next episode or two um because if anything i think their relationship at the end of this episode they seem closer than they have in a long time but obviously we haven't seen the fallout of this and uh kim obviously gonna be incredibly shaken i assume jimmy to be as well from this uh i i want to hear your thoughts on what you expect for them but let's just talk about this episode first i mean i was just so impressed with how this had me on the edge of my seat the whole time lalo had this plan which i i I did not know this is where the plan was going i didn't know he was basically me neither (laughs) yeah basically using kim as bait to draw mike out to saul's apartment to leave gus pretty much uh exposed knowing gus was going to um go to the lab to protect it in a way um just like so brilliant and i think highlights lalo as just such a amazing villain for this show the tone that dalton was able to set by being so intimidating in his time as lalo but also like incredibly charming and charismatic i think back to those scenes where he was like over in europe and kind of charming the pants off the widow and i was like man this (laughs) this is such a singular performance from dalton what were like your favorite moments from this because i I just have so many that come to mind yeah like you said it it does such a good job of maintaining tension despite the fact that like you're pretty sure that lalo's dead at some point because he can't be on breaking bad 
and you know <laughs> Gus is gonna live, and you know Jimmy's gonna live. So it's like this, and and and, and uh, Mike as well. So it's like despite all that, the, the show and the writing it is just so expert in that it can it can ratchet up and maintain this tension and just kind of keep you on the edge of your seat. You know, I think the whole the whole time where like Kim's going to do the job she's been set out to do there's like a sense of dread that's like passed on from kim to the viewer and you know when they're at that when she's at that stoplight and she sees the two police officers on her on her on her left and like she wants to both ask them for help to save her but also hopes they don't catch her in the act it's like really great and even before that when we're in the apartment and they both jimmy and kim both take turns pleading why they should not be the one sent to do the job and the other person mm-hmm. should do it was like really awesome because like they both get to be like their their like slip in grifter lawyer selves but you also know that they're doing it because of how much they care about their other person but the this exactly. episode did a huge job of like really building up even further that jimmy and kim relationship mm-hmm. they have together and now we're just going to see like Ine- inevitably the, the the pieces you assume fall in some way because there's not going to be able to come back from this and yeah. we know that Jimmy is going to be compartmentalizing the shit out of this, as we saw the Assault Goodman and Breaking Bad. So, yeah, I, I think just really the whole lead up to when Kim gets uh, gets caught and, and doesn't pull off the assassination, um, the, that whole that whole lead up is like really amazing. And I think kind of um, left unexplained was Lalo figured out um, where the safe house was that they were, you know, a, a Gus and Mike and everyone had bought up like this whole block it felt like or close to it and like making these tunnels between houses and stuff to keep them safe and Lalo had sn- sniffed that out in some way and he knew where to send them. I, I was like oh interesting from the plot but uh, it just kind of builds up the-, the genius that has been Lalo you know where like mm-hmm. and then because it's breaking you know, better call Saul because it's like Vince Gold and Peter Gold they will take the time and be super meticulous with how they set these things up. Remember how long we spent watching uh, Lalo stake out the lab from inside the sewer, you know? Yeah. Oh, like, incredible. The process of Better Call Saul is always so good. But then when you actually mm-hmm. see payoff via plot, it makes it all the more fulfilling and satisfying because you've earned everything. Yeah, I, if I, I think I'm just forgetting, but I do think there's a part where we see that he knows where Gus's house is. He okay. maybe doesn't know where the safe is, but I think he knows, like, where gus goes home uh but yeah, obviously like you said the tunnels yeah it has um but yeah i i thought that was great and then you talk about like the the act of love that is each of them trying to get the other person out of the apartment and just like okay i'll be the one to stay here with this maniac and you can go and be free and hopefully save yourself just like it fits so well and then jimmy obviously he gets tied up falling over and being face to face uh with um howard howard yes and i just thought that was like such a perfect gilligan touch like poetic in the most obvious way possible making him like actually stare at the consequences of his actions was just like so well done there's nothing he could do to look away he just had to like lay there with him uh just thought that was fantastic um yeah and then you kind of get some like humorous moments right kim is Kim gets taken in and they're trying to figure out what, why she was there, who sent her. And she's like, I'm supposed to kill you. It just points at the random bodyguard, not knowing that he's not Gus, you know, and dressed up as Gus, but that was funny. <laughs> yeah. The guy's like, well, uh, I thought that was really great. And then obviously all the stuff with Lalo and Gus at, at the, uh, 
the the lab was just really amazing and tension filled and then classic gus you get the phone call to the uh polos hermanos uh employee with the bullet in his side and he's so calm the whole time but it you know (laughs) just needs to be have surgery just uh really great and you know we, we talk a lot about the performance of mike in this show mike i think the the one thing about like doing a prequel with older actors is like if you watch any of like the breaking bad stuff you're like wow mike looks so much younger jonathan in these banks is an old man now no but john but jonathan banks in this episode just like throwing 110 when he's like i'm gonna take this off and you need to speak calmly and low <laughs> like i'm just like so good <laughs> right. and he but he has this sense of like, sense of like urgency and fear in him, you know, like he's yeah. trying to get a handle on the situation. Well, and then at the end where he has to tell Jimmy and Kim, like how, how things yeah. are going to go. And then before that, we're like, you can see kind of like the resignation that he's like, fuck, I need to go search Howard's corpse right now and grab his wallet and take off his wedding ring. It's like, you know, it's like, there's so much like, I think like physical acting, the job yeah. that's really imbues into the character. And, you know, I think throughout the course of Better Call Saul to this point, you know, and we should probably say this because it's very likely that we see very little of Mike and Gus for the rest of Better Call Saul. Narratively, there's very little reason to continue to see them. The cartel stuff has basically been tied off and we're at the point, more or less, with them where they will mm-hmm. be when we meet them in Breaking Bad. You know, Jimmy, we obviously still have to learn more about and see more things happen. But, you know, we've, we've seen, I think, a little layer, more layers of Mike over the course of Saul. Gus, probably less so, I would say. However... This episode, I think, was a great episode for Esposito. You mentioned his call to his employee at the end, but also that scene in the lab when he's with Lalo and he kind of just dresses down uh, Don Eladio to uh, mm. Lalo's you know, camcorder and he can really pontificate. And we saw, obviously, yeah. amazing speechifying by Gus, by uh, Giancarlo Esposito in Breaking Bad. We've gotten less opportunity to see that here in Saul, you know, but I think that was still a great moment, and a, a nice send. This is a nice send off episode, assumingly, for for Gus. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought that was really strong, and you get to see a side of Gus that you know you never really get to see in Breaking Bad. Really getting his hands dirty in that sense, uh, having to kill Allo himself, having to kind of like figure things out and not have someone else like do uh, doing the the grunt work, so to speak. Um, yeah, did you like the death for Lalo? Because he, I mean, he gets shot in the dark, and then the lights come back on, and and he's dead. And in a sense, it feels right. But in another sense, like Tony Dalton just was so so amazing as this character. It almost feels hard to not to see him die in the dark in a way. Yeah, you know, I, I did I did enjoy how at the end he's like coughing up blood and drowning and he's like mm-hmm. he's like smiling he's like laughing basically about the way he went out and who killed him and stuff and like that all felt very on care on brand right honestly though watching it because it was so dark i actually thought gus missed because like he like he pulled the trigger until it was empty and like definitely had a face of fear yeah and i was like oh fuck gus gus fired his last bullet and now he has no way out and, and like, what's going to happen? Mike's going to come in as the Calvary and save him at the end. That's kind of where I thought was going. I Me actually didn't think that he pulled off the shots and killed killed Lalo the way he did. But 100% agree. That's what I thought happened. But um, yeah, so w- let's talk about Lalo real quick. In like the overarching scheme of Breaking Bad, where does he rank in terms of villains for you? Ooh, that's a good, that's a good question. I think the number one has to be Gus Fring from Breaking yeah. Bad. 
Mm-hmm. And then number two, you know, it's probably it's either Lalo or I guess Todd Jesse Plemons. Man, that's a good one. You know, Todd is we're beyond Tuco. We're beyond mm-hmm. the early villains, and we're beyond the uh, neo Nazi guys at the end for sure. Yeah. So I think it's Lalo versus Todd. I right. think so too. I, I think Lalo is clear number two to me, and yeah. that might even be push pushing Gus because Gus, as much as he was like, just like so menacing and such a force, like Lalo was so physical and just did things in so many different ways as a villain in the show. I mean, right. they, people literally thought he was dead, and he had a because he had a body double that he had been like planning for years and grooming for years with his yeah. own teeth. It's like such a crazy thing, but like such a cool part of a villain you know just sure. uh, really impressive i mean in a sense mike is a villain in breaking bad true which factors in you know not, not a total villain right obviously when when mike dies you don't feel good you feel bad obviously when Vaughn mm-hmm. kills him but you know the cousins also are they're just kind of you know goons basically they're not you know well-rounded villains per se so yeah i, I think the I mean, the tony one performance elevated so much but everything with lalo has just i think been a kind of a sense of fear and it was a, I think a really nice way to between Gus on soil and Lalo on soil showing you more of sides of the cartel and the Salamanca specifically um it's just done in a really effective way but Lalo I think due to like the um the cunning and genius that they imbue in his character that combined with the spectacular performance from Dolan yeah I mean just really elevates him. You know, I think uh, Todd, I mean, the big Todd moments, like when he kills the kid on that train episode, right? But, and you just see, but he's just, he's just kind of a psycho. And like, yeah. Lalo's a psycho too, but like, he's like a genius psycho. Yeah. So that probably <laughs> counts more, right? Yeah. And also, I think it's just more fun to be with Lalo because villains also have to be someone that you enjoy being with in my book. And, mm. uh, or at least like that, maybe if you don't even enjoy, but like, give you something to like want to spend more time with them todd for as much as you liked uh you like jesse plemons i don't think he's a care a villain i'm like right. oh man all those todd moments you know um, but lalo yeah <sighs> well, we we get the stuff when jimmy has to save him in court mr guzman <laughs> yeah. there, there's so much to lalo over the course of yeah. two and a half seasons i think that's mm-hmm. all it was but yeah i mean Great stuff. I, but like I said, I'm just so pleased with how effective his final moments were in the, in these last two episodes because it's kind of no perfect, and we're still left with five more hours with Saul, which is so exciting. Yeah, and you know, it, there's something about every time he was interacting with Jimmy, you just felt uncomfortable. Like I, I think back to the episode where uh, of season four, where you know Mike has the sniper rifle on the the room on the apartment and just like how tense that whole scene is like it's just crazy the the impact dalton had in, in, in this role so and definitely has risen his star immensely uh so g- great looks so now that we have five episodes left any any predictions anything that you expect or want to see well it, it feels like kim's life expectancy has rapidly increased with lala oh, gone yeah. i mean there's no one left alive on the show who would you'd expect to kill her so unless she dies in some accident or something she's probably not not dead you know in our present day future scenes black and white omaha scenes right so what does that leave you know i think we're really going to see this relationship 
fray in some way and whether we're going to lead up to a re- reconciliation and the post breaking bad scenes who can say but i'm really looking forward to seeing how this relationship survives or lack or doesn't survive following this clear turning point in both their lives yeah do you think kim turns herself in that's a good question that's kind of where i'm leaning right now yeah yeah i don't really have a good prediction but that actually sounds sounds like it would track yeah uh man uh emmy nominated rhea seahorn you know uh has been active on Twitter and, and pushing articles and stuff. So definitely a worthy follow. Um, yeah. I, I think I, one of the things I would definitely like to see, and I don't expect to get it, but is like some sort of actual like emotional re- uh, reckoning for Saul in regards to his brother's death. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. that's just, we, we pretty much see after his brother dies that, he just like becomes slipping Jimmy. Right. And he right. just basically morphs into Saul and it would be really cathartic. I think for the audience to at least see him like have a human moment um, that's outside of Kim before the end of the series. I don't know if we'll get that, but that would probably be one of the things on my wish list for sure. Yeah. And then of course there's, there's the unknown of how we're going to see Walt and Jesse see Cranston and Aaron Paul true on this show. I imagine it's only like a episode or part of a episode, but is this a dream sequence you know haunting of jimmy is this a flashback in jimmy's head are we going to see like a different side of some key moments in breaking bad or are we going to see a brand new scene that kind of adds context the way like the duel between anakin and obi-wan in the council mm. chambers wasn't kenobi you know what kind of scene is it going to be exactly i feel like it's going to be something along one of those lines but yeah what that actually is i they're not just going to do it just to do it it's going to do something narratively in an effective way and i'm just obviously looking forward to seeing what the hell that means and then yeah what is like the finality of the show because this is the this is going to feel like the end of both saul and breaking bad yeah because of how intertwined these series are so what kind of notes note are we left with, with, with Jimmy and perhaps Kim too? I don't know, but really can't wait to see, see it end. Yeah. I mean, Vince Gilligan, one of the best uh, TV creators out there right now. So be checking out better call. Saul. Um, let's move on to the boys season three wrapping up, uh, man, Dave, just the, the symmetry of our pictures. If you're watching YouTube again, just always, makes me laugh uh the picture you have a homelander versus the picture i have a homelander just tells two very different sides of uh anthony Starr's character this season and you know i think i think the season of the boys i think it touched on some very present and um obviously political but i think also um had some great observations on just the current state of like media and pop culture and i don't know if the finale totally landed the boat the way i expected them to um and maybe it's more so the the hope i was having that there would be more reconciliation than than we got at the end of of the season but i think this is still a really great season of television and this is a very singular show there's really nothing that does what the boys does right now so uh, i i enjoyed the season how about you yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't as let down by this season three finale because 
I kind of expect the lack of resolution with the boys. The boys cannot exist without Homelander. Soldier Boy and the boys are not going to kill Homelander in the finale. It's just not going to happen. So something else has to happen. In this case, it's like their loyalties or the, or the, the motivations. Everyone's gets all muddled real quick. And next thing we know, we're not trying to take down Homelander. But I think it made just enough sense to, to track and be okay. So, you know, I'm satisfied with that. You know, I think uh, where it leaves you with Homelander at his most out in the open with who he really is, and now with his son, Ryan, directly in the fold and assumingly becoming more of a character moving forward, I think that leaves us with a new place. It does feel like we've progressed with the world in a certain sense. Of course, the boys as the crew continue to feel like we just keep uh, not making progress, but if you look into what each entity is supposed to represent um, in terms of satirization of real world events and politics and culture, things like that, everything does kind of still track and make sense as, as observations. So at the end of the day, it's still really entertaining as well. You know, I think the, the Anthony Starr performance as Homelander obviously keeps the show together, but one of, if not the best, like, acting performance across like superhero tv like it, it, it's truly amazing like the, the range of this performance and how he really commands this character which is so essential to this series yeah uh perfect casting and uh, this has to be an actor's dream right like to get to play a yeah. character like this who just is like so bizarre and out there in every single possible direction i mean the the season starts off with him basically forcing a woman to kill herself because he finds out that the love of his life who's a like 80 year old nazi superhero supervillain uh kills herself by eating her own tongue or biting her own tongue off and choking on it and ends with him literally killing someone on wall street uh the in front of a, a mass of people similar to the way uh certain ex-presidents said that he would be able to do um and it's like just everything in between you know him uh looking back at his childhood and not having a uh parent to be there for him and how that has impacted him but then you actually see the way that that plays out and the way he responds to Ryan, which I thought was one of the strongest scenes in the final episodes was the way that he finds Ryan at the safe house and then tell like gives him the affection that butcher was not able to give him and kind of setting up how the nurturing of this next generation or how you choose to treat them heavily influences the way that they build their ideas and the ways that they see the world and who they want to follow whether that's right or wrong i thought that was really effective um i think there's a lot of really ridiculous parts of this season i mean i think we have to talk about soldier boy next as this mm -hmm. like uh you know kind of like shot of a i don't know if shot of adrenaline is the right word because this show is always at, at 110 but just like this addition to the season that I did not see coming, but I think it was really effective. What was your, what was your overall temperature on soldier boy? I liked it. I liked him a lot. Uh, Jensen Eccles I think the performance was really effective. And, you know, I think in one hand, like the lore, the world of the boys, getting to color in and learn more about the past mm -hmm. via soldier boy. And 
everyone who interacted with him, such as Black Noir. But I think you know it, it was kind of cool from a commentary standpoint to see like the way Homelander would talk and Vought would talk about the threat of Soldier Boy was kind of like uh, like COVID basically, because obviously mm. Homelander has become the avatar for Trump in, in yeah. this scenario, and how Homelander would be like, just go outside, do your thing, nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, keep doing what you want to do, and go to the movies and restaurants, and it's like, it's, it, it, yeah. Eric Kripke has made very clear, he's like, I know the boys is not subtle, mm-hmm. but I'm just expressing this point of view, and right. I, I enjoy seeing it, you know? And I think with Soldier Boy, it, it, there was a lot of narrative propulsion with this character, I think, in an effective way. Because, again, if this show is going to progress and we know at the end, Homelander's not going to die. So we need something to invest in. I feel like you invest in, like, Soldier Boy as, like, this weapon that can take right. out Homelander. But also, he is a horrific entity in his own right, a product of a different age and not an ally you want to have and how the boys really wrestled with all that towards the end of the season i thought was 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 well done you know i think um in a sense we really picked we picked up the show nicely from stormfront being our the, the key figure of season two and killing herself in the beginning of this season and then replacing the stormfront energy with uh, soldier boy here so i i, I enjoyed i think I, I enjoyed him and i thought he was effective and how he fit into the kind of ebbs and flows of this season. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Soldier Boy and, and Jensen Ackles playing him were, were really great additions. Um, it, obviously, having something that feels like it can level with Homelander in some way, as well as them taking the, is it the H? Is it what they called it? The V? Uh, the agent? Whatever that chemical was that made them superheroes. I'm uh, forgetting t- that. They were taking the Temp V. Temp V. Versus, temp V. That's what it was. Compound V, which is like the more permanent stuff that Vault has on their lock and key. Which I, I thought was, uh, you know, you needed something to like level the playing field uh, for this season. So I thought that made a lot of sense. And was Homelander and Butcher can only interact so many times before it is so beyond the realm possibility that Butcher <laughs> wouldn't have just cut off his head with his laser eyes. So yeah. this was a nice way to do that. And also ends with a nice place where Butcher perhaps is on, is on borrowed time, so we're told. Yeah. So <laughs> We're going to ratchet that up. We'll see. But yeah, I thought that was like a really smart thing. Also made Huey a much more uh, interesting present character. character in the story as well. Totally. Yeah. And I thought it, I thought it made him a, uh, a, a bit more like you, you understood a bit more his like desires and like what his character really wants to achieve, which is like to just be like respected um, and, you know, really does not know how to make sense of, uh, <laughs> of, where he stands among these supers uh, when he is a very, very, very normal person. Also, just a funny thing, when he confronts um, uh, the running guy, the A-Train, the Flash, A-Train yes, uh, at the Herogasm, at the... Uh, I had totally forgotten that's where the series started, with him killing his girlfriend. I had completely yeah. forgotten about that. That's how far we've gotten and all this. So, like, when he confronts him, I was like, what's 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 he doing this for and then i was like holy fuck like we've gone yeah. so far down the rabbit hole this show it's pretty crazy right um well if you think about it too the boys has really progressed in the beginning as you just said it was kind of about the lack of dignity and respect that super soup soups were treating the rest of the world with we have to take down the soups the soups are bad overall mm-hmm. 
now we're to the point where we'll, we're going to probably compromise ourselves by becoming soups, perhaps just temporarily, to achieve our greater good. But the show itself has also kind of progressed beyond satirizing the superhero culture we find ourselves in with Marvel and DC and everything else. And we still have that here. And we've moved on to just kind of satirizing and rubbing, uh, ribbing everything, culture, politics, uh, left and right spectrum. It's all it's all fair game now at this point, in addition to superhero culture, you know? And it's it's kind of been fun to, I think, be with the boys and see that progression. Now, I don't think everything has been effective. You know, um, uh, Victoria Newman, the uh, who's now seemingly the vice president uh, nominee, uh, run, running, you know, running, running, nom- uh, campaigning nominee at the end of the season. She was introduced as like the progressive figure in politics, kind of an AOC stand, and notably Claudia Doman looks a lot like AOC as well. But yeah. like her character has progressed in a completely different direction. It just doesn't feel like that kind of analog. And you know, I, I thought that was kind of weird. You know, it's like she's just not like an effective like representation of what she was introduced as. You know, whereas it's been hilarious to see like some right-wing fans of the series, the boys all of a sudden be like, wait a minute, the boys is political and, and, and Homelander is Trump and they're, they're lampooning this. I don't like this. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, that, that was obvious. That was always the case. You're just a <laughs> moron. If you didn't know that before, Which like they clearly changed what Victoria Newman was about the way yeah. she was introduced anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I don't know if, if her like, and really feels that effective and obviously uh you have Giancarlo Esposito talking about him for the second segment in a row um who gets sidelined pretty quick in this season I mean uh, she turns on him he gets sent to jail for you know uh I forgot what it was that they said that he potentially did but instead of just like going after Homelander, yeah for Vaught over the years you know yeah general <laughs> list we assume <laughs> um and so it's it's like I I just didn't know if that like storyline was like the most interesting part of the season to me, you know, the A train stuff is interesting, right? Because I think it's like blue hawk. Yeah. This there's this like aspect of the show, which I think is trying to like touch on white supremacy and the, um, the responsibilities of the black community or why certain responsibilities are put in the black community. And I think, um, uh alonzo uh sorry laz alonzo has to carry a lot of that weight um and e-train kind of does like the the fake uh activism yeah performative activism throughout this season and ultimately can't really change his stripes and just wants to hold on to this life of fame and almost like uses that activism as a way to like get that fame back or that notoriety back in some sense and and i i just think like some of that stuff just didn't didn't feel fully like fully baked or like it just didn't like totally land dropped ultimately yeah and like it kind of sucked because like it it really like put laz alonzo apart from butcher for a lot of the season he kind of teams up with starlight but like i felt like what made me interested in laz and frenchie and all them was when they were together with butcher you don't really get that team up until the end yeah and so for a lot of the season i'm kind of like okay frenchie's got this thing going on Laz has this thing going on starlight's over here and none of them are interacting together and i kind of lost like interest in a lot of what was going on i just wanted to be with butcher and huey as they were going after yeah. homelander for a lot of it so i didn't know if that totally worked yeah and I, I gotta thought, s- oh go ahead at least with mother's milk with mm 
at least like the direct connection to Soldier Boy, I think brought his character more into the fold. Uh, in, I think in an interesting way. But the A Train stuff, you know, I think it's uh, it's a bit up and down. Like I, I like seeing Blue Hawk as this like clear analog for just like you know, Blue Lives Matter, racist, ra- racial policing, and yep. and, and all those things. And like that part's good. But also, like, we kind of just get introduced. We don't really see anything new with A Train's relationship to his community. Like, his brother is ex- judging his shit, on, shit out of him and espousing to him directly who he is for the audience. But that was not anything we didn't already know. And, like you said, at the, by the end of the season, A Train, who's just kind of become a lackey for, of Homelander because he doesn't really know what else to do with his life, it's a bit inert, you know? Um, Next to him, you have the Deep again. We're ending oh. with him as just another lackey of Homelander. I think the Deep, even if he's like pretty much inconsequential, apart from some like key narrative beats, like I think just the performance of like the Deep being viewed as a joke, both by us as viewers, but also in universe, mm-hmm. uh, makes him an amusing presence to be around. Um, yeah, for sure. And then Maeve was the one who had like the most like finality to her season despite not being in the season all that much i thought that was kind of a nice choice though to basically write her out of the series the way mm-hmm. they did even though they didn't technically kill her i thought they were going to kill her off but either way she's basically off the grid without stranger any things anymore. yeah <laughs> so, i mean soldier boy as well he's actually just back on ice and under cia control now he's not actually dead yeah uh only one character had more finality than them and that's black noir who yeah. actually I, I actually really thought the way that they handled Butcher's like backstory and Black Noir's backstory was actually really well done. The way that they kind of like brought you into the loop on their trauma and how that's informed their behaviors and who they are. And like at first I thought the cartoons were kind of like this like kitschy, kind of a lame way to do it, but like I think it actually ended up making a lot of sense. It was like an interesting flourish to the show. Yeah. Well, just making Noir finally telling something about Noir beyond the right. fact that he used to work with Soldier Boy. And what, what that was was that he's actually just been like this tortured soul for some time and just kind of like super fucked up by this. And I actually felt like really bad at the end when Homelander killed him, even though he hasn't exactly been much of a character and he's usually been a bad guy or, or mainly a bad guy due to just doing what a Homelander wants him to do. But like when he died at the end, I was like, ah, oh, man. This guy just has been kind of fucked up for so long, and just he just he, just, he did a lot of fucked French. up shit still. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, <laughs> yeah. but they definitely the do a good job. They actually imbued some pathos into Black Noir. I think it's mm-hmm. pretty impressive because obviously they, they yeah. juggle a lot with the Homelander character, but to actually give you like something to chew on with the Black Noir character while killing him off, I thought was pretty impressive. Totally agree. Um, yeah, I think overall the boys kind of just kind of it just added, I think, a lot to what it already is as a show, but I don't know if this necessarily like elevated it. It's just so in its own realm and, you know, ultra gory, ultra sexual, um, lewd. Um, but I think it, I think it goes to places that not all, I think it goes to places that not any show on TV really is willing to go fully. So do I do appreciate that. Do you have any final thoughts on this season? Uh, no, I'm more to, what you just said i think the boys is like super effective at what it's going for and like was really humming this season it's just a real blast to be with and the fact that 
the show can be on the nose and obvious with its commentary at times, I think it's totally fine, honestly, because I think everything about the show really works like that. Obviously, there's stuff that doesn't work. I thought Kimiko largely wasted this season. Really yeah. didn't have anything to do. Not everything's perfect, but like what the boys is going for, it's really effective at. And I'm honestly really looking forward to the spinoff series, which we know we're going to get next year. We're going to get this spinoff before the boys season four. The boys presents varsity, the college vaught training soups spinoff series. Mm-hmm. Vaught, vaught soups college where they fucking kill each other. Sounds amazing. Can't wait. <laughs> uh, I have no doubt it'll be good. Um, Let's talk about another superhero, though. Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, came out this weekend, another MCU movie out in theaters. The 29th and... MCU movie, baby. Crazy. Rolling. It's insane. Um, man, did you ever think that the, um, the fallout of Thor The Dark World and the Patty Jenkins directing departure was going to have such an effect on a movie this far down the line because like uh, when i left this movie i just was like that was a lot there's a lot to process in terms of the movie i had a good time Mm -hmm. but like it felt like so much i think because portman didn't want to be a part of things for so long and now she's like okay we can have this nice send-off for jane foster but yeah. it just made the movie have to do so much legwork. I think I think that's also like a symptom of Taika's current mind state, and we'll talk about that. But man, I just was like kind of shocked at like how <laughs> how influential Thor: The Dark World is on this film in, in a sense. Yeah, I, I suppose you know. I mean, this is our fourth Thor film, the first MCU solo series to get a fourth film. Uh, and yet, you know, it's uh, really the second Thor film because it's the second under this very intentional, deliberate reboot of the character by Chris Hemsworth and Taika Waititi. So it, it, it's kind of interesting in that regard where it feels like it's in the Ragnarok realm, but we're bringing back a clear relic of the old Thor that we didn't want to do anymore, which was Jane Foster. Mm-hmm. And Natalie Portman who I love, I've loved it forever as a kid, obviously, pre- fan of the prequels here. Natalie Portman is a bit more up and down with Taika's vibe and Taika's style um, in terms of what he asks of his performers. So there's things to talk about there. But yeah, I mean, and think about it, like I, I wasn't even expecting Christian Bale to come back to a franchise movie at this stage of his career. Yeah. It's the first time he's done this in like 10 years, you know? But it was a really committed villain performance. As Boy yeah. God Butcher, uh, Bale definitely uh, uh, delivered on what he was asked to do, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Bale in a second, but, you know, you think about where Thor is at at this point, right? And he's kind of become this, like, bumbling buffoon of a superhero. And that I think that makes sense. Uh, Hemsworth famously, I think, I can't remember if it was after The Dark World or after Ultron was like, I'm drowning this character. Got to got to do something different. Taika, right. I think, is a great fit for where Hemsworth wanted to go. Wanted to lean more right. into the comedic aspects. Both I think that's all great. That side of the world too. So Hemsworth was a natural advocate as an Australian, and Taika as a New Zealander. So it all made sense. So I I, I think that 
like the character has moved in the right direction. Um, I think the thing is like Ragnarok felt very specific as this movie that was an exploration of grief and family and coming together. But also it's just like, we're going to explore all these things, but around like a party vibe, we're going to just make this fun. We're going to let the crowd have all these crowd pleasing moments. Everybody's going to be cheering Hulk versus Thor in the gladiator ring. Great, great stuff. Amazing stuff. This just felt like it was really trying to cover a bunch of different genres of movie. I mean, uh, you could show me a scene from like five different parts of the movie and you would not be able to really pinpoint what the movie is going for. And I think that's probably the biggest criticism. With that all said, I I think there's moments in this that are like so far and beyond what other Marvel properties in general, but like Marvel movies have been able to do. I think that's the thing that's kind of been like a through line is like in the the Doctor Strange movie, right? We have the the music note fight scene or like when they're going across all the worlds and like going through all the the universes or whatever it is, dimensions, and they're kind of changing as they go. Like that's like, yeah, that's the cool stuff. In this one, you get that amazing scene where they go find Gore on that moon. They have that oh, yeah. amazing battle, and we'll talk Black about that more. But it's like you get these glimpses in these movies now of like this like one really amazing idea, and you're like, just commit to like this, you know, like just be this. Yeah. But they're still so strapped to being these Marvel properties that need to feel so familiar to people. It's like uh, it, I just want them to like take a risk and kind of spice it up a little bit more. Right. Well, and that's the thing too, because when they brought in Taika back in 27 or no when the game movie came out in 2017 it felt like a risk because it was like the first time in a while that you were getting the director's identity in an mcu movie of course black panther with kugler coming out around that same time but now you're getting for love and thunder and it's an unconnected movie it does not have any like mcu obligations per se i mean we do see the guardians of the galaxy in the beginning because that's just where thor was left left with but for the most part we pack them up get them out of there and we get on our merry way mm-hmm. as a thor movie which it's totally fine you know but at the end of the day taika waititi juggles tone that's his thing so when you also have a lot of different plot threads and things you're interested in in your movie on top of juggling tone throughout. Yeah. I mean, things are going to be up and down in terms of their effectiveness. I think that's just kind of par for the course with what he's trying to do with Thor Uh at this time. You know, I think that's to be expected. I saw a lot of, I think, hand wringing about, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe phase four's relative aimlessness in a post Thanos world. And like kind of putting that on Thor. Whereas I feel like Thor Love and Thunder is like totally doing its own thing. And that's supposed to be what we always wanted, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's, that's what, that was so good about Moon Knight, right? I didn't even like Moon Knight, but like at least Moon Knight was just doing its thing and being itself, you know? Thor Love and Thunder was just doing that, right? And like, I just didn't understand like those criticisms a lot of people seem to have are like, now Marvel fatigue has set, set in and I'm going to take it all out on Thor and Taika Waititi. It's like, I feel like we need to step that back just a little bit. and perhaps analyze the way you put it where it's like yeah there's a lot of different threads going on here and if maybe we strip this down a little bit or notch it down the humor so that dramatic stakes would land in a more uh mature way or at least in a way that makes them feel like they matter more 
perhaps then the movie is more effect, uh, more effective. But for what it is, you know, which is this big bumbling mess by design, I still had a pretty good time with it. So oh yeah, you know, I I would much rather take this than something that's so much more <laughs> bland, but like committed to one tone. You know. Oh, completely agree. And I mean. There are just mo- moments in this movie that freaking rock. First of all, y- you've heard it in all of the promos and all of the trailers, but the use of Guns and Roses and just yeah. like 80s rock is just like fantastic in this. And like, right. I really love like the playfulness. You talked about how there's like certain ass things Taika asks of his actors. And he really, I think in the end, just wants everybody to be playful and to like commit to whatever their bit is. And you get people fucking committing in this, bro. Um, let's uh, let's talk just real quick about our guy Russell Crowe, who oh, shows yeah. up as Zeus. Talk about committing. He's not. He's going for this bad Greek accent, which is just like I don't even know. I, I like don't know who taught him how to do that accent, but it was terrible. But yeah, he is such a bumbling buffoon by design in this. And I just loved every second of it. He was hamming it up, being ridiculous. Yeah. And I was like, this is great. Good good for Russell Crowe. And everything on that God world by design is supposed to be ridiculous and stupid. You're uninvited mm-hmm. to the orgy. Hilarious. But like, I I just was like, this is this is fun. I, I like that yeah. Taika got to do this. Totally, totally. You know, in that moment, too, I think it's uh, when they're going to, uh, I forget the name of the place, where all the gods chill. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're kind of, uh, I forget who said it, maybe Korg says it or something, when they're like, who we're going to see. And they, they name drop uh, Quetzalcoatl. And I watched this movie in Mexico. So <laughs> all the Mexican people around me were, were laughing super hard at the name drop of Quetzalcoatl for obvious reasons. I, that, that was just a fun thing to be a part of. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I, I loved all that stuff. I, I thought the goats were, were great. I, I found them so funny. And then having them actually be like the ones that pull the boat, I thought was just like yeah. fantastic. Really loved that. And I, I think the, the temperature on, um, oh man, what's, what's the rock dude's name? Why am I? Korg. Korg. Yes. I think the temperature on Korg is like varying for a lot of people, but, and, and certainly he's asked to do a lot of like exposition and like dumping of like past storylines that play into this, which is just kind of, it's a marvel problem at this point we're too far down the line like everything is too interconnected to like not have something like that to explain where a lot of these stories pick up but i think Korg gets a chance to do some some really fun stuff and drop his one-liners and i, I enjoy Korg. it's so. to- it, it, taika's voice work as Korg is always funny so yeah. that when he expounds upon like stuff it's just it's just nice to be around you know uh like remember the end of ragnarok where they're they're, <laughs> yeah. they're on the ship and he's like uh Oh, you can rebuild. Foundation's still there. And then there's like another explosion. He's like, oh, never mind. Foundation's all gone. You know, it's just he he's just fun. He's just fun. Yeah. He's light. He's a light presence, you know. Um speaking of the music, at the end, they just drop Ronnie James Dio's Rainbow in the Dark. I was like, oh my god, another banger. You had to save it for the credits. I wish that was in the movie. Uh yeah, I mean. You know, in a sense, they run a lot of stuff back, right? Like you, in the beginning, at New Asgard. We see Matt Damon, Sam Neill, and Luke Hemsworth again as the actors. And I actually love that they brought them back because I laughed just as much the second time. Yep. Especially at that second scene, which uh, was apparently uh, nearly cut, where I, I believe Tessa Thompson advocated to keep it in, where uh, Matt Damon basically is like, 
Well, they didn't say no. They yeah. started riffing into their next routine of what what had just happened to them when uh, Gore attacked the town. S- super funny, you know. Uh, in the beginning, like I think some of the jokes with uh, I think I think it was Cord who was making uh, Jane Fonda and Jodie Foster jokes <laughs> about yeah. Jane Foster. Super Fantastic. smart, super witty, very Taika. Um, yeah, I mean, anything else that like stands out to you is like Taika quirks because like. There's a lot, a lot of threads that we're talking about here. The love and thunder becomes actually very paramount from the title mm-hmm. into like our themes here. But there's also for a nice stretch of the movie, we're we're in like kind of like a, like a sick person's like cancer movie, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I don't know if I can think of any like quirks that come to mind right now. I think like, I think just stylistically, some of the stuff like we talked about the fight on the moon, like that feels like a very singular taika type vision in terms of how they and you can listen to uh, some podcasts about how they were um they shot that scene but they use this like special lighting system that was like shooting light from all these different directions on the people and like swinging the camera upside down and stuff really really cool um yeah and i think honestly just the like the technicolor vibe of the whole thing it feels so much brighter than a lot of the other Marvel movies do. And so I, I think that would probably be the other like flourish. Um, I want to talk about like the, the two other performances that really stand out to me in this. And that's Portman, which I think Portman coming back and being like, we're going to give Jane this like send off. I guess we needed it, but like, I don't ever mind having more Natalie Portman in my life. And I thought she was pretty good. Um, especially because she is kind of playing this dual role where she's, superhero and dying sick person um yeah i i think she plays both roles really well and uh it was just fun to get to see her be a badass um and i thought all the stuff between her and thor when they first like get back together and she's all powerful with mjolnir and you know the the axe i think that's all really like well done i enjoyed all that totally um what'd you think of her performance yeah i think sometimes she struggled a bit with like taika's humor which is not really her strength as a performer the catchphrase yeah yeah right that kind of stuff but yeah it it was just nice to be with her again and i think the fact that they made her sick and they had her die at the end actually added a lot more like narrative repulsion than i expected beyond them oh we'll just bring back thor and do the mighty thor storyline because we don't know what else to do so I was a bit impressed with what she was able to do as a result. Now we didn't get as much Valkyrie as a way of light. I think Tessa Thompson is awesome in this role. She, she definitely yeah. gets Tyka's vibe for sure, but she only gets to do so much. Um, you know, she's basically absent for the second half of the film, but, but we do get it. It was, it's fun. I just, I think she's great. I love when they're in the, the God's place, whatever it is. And she, uh, she like goes up to Zeus's like, I don't know goddesses around him and like kisses one of them on the hand it's very like robin hood-esque or like james bond-esque and i thought that was just a classic tessa thompson type moment um i i also really uh liked how they kind of just already had them be friends we didn't have to see yeah. valkyrie and jane like form this friendship it's like oh yeah they just are like cool chicks who get along with each other and like <laughs> we didn't need to over explain this i thought that was a nice choice apparently there's like a four and a half hour cut of this movie which Yes, that's a lot. But the Grandmaster Jeff Goldblum was apparently back. Uh, Peter Dinklage's character from Infinity War was apparently back. I think the implication was Gore was going to kill them as well. I'm not exactly sure, but um, yeah, drop I the think... YTD cut. 
yeah, actually, Taika had some funny comments about how director's cut sucks and there's sucks and there's no way you'll ever see my director's cut. At that point. <laughs> I, I like that. That was funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we should talk about gore, though. I mean, yeah. Um, awesome way to start the film where they just immediately introduce you to our villain. Clear motivations, clear origin story. Get in, get out. You know who this guy is. Is he still kind of um, unexplained with his powers? You know, just kind of this necro sword stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't quite know exactly how strong he was, but I got what his his vibe was. I got his thing, and honestly, I really didn't see coming with how it ends with his daughter uh, staying alive and then Thor taking him taking her under his wing moving forward, played by uh, Hemsworth's real life daughter as well. Didn't see that coming at all, but. You know, I think you get what you paid for, I think, where which is Christian Bale is one of, if not the greatest actors to play an MCU villain, superhero villain in general. Yeah. And you got a really committed performance from an actor who is famously very committed. And don't feel like there was any notes to give about Gore. Gore was really effective. And I think, like you said, the shining example is the stuff on the moon where you have this really awesome visual scene which actually has some practical lighting brought in to make it stand out beyond the cgi and yeah i think just gores felt like a real i think great presence on this on uh, in this film which is nice because with a movie this stuff with themes and ideas and tones i think you really needed your conflict driver to be successful in this movie Mm -hmm. and not be kind of a lame undercooked marvel villain which is we've seen plenty of those over the years. So, yeah, I think overall the the, the gore stuff lived up to the hype. Uh, I think Bale is fantastic. I think you actually brought up a great question, which is like, what? Who are the best actors of all time to play a villain in one of these movies? And I mean, it's it's obviously Brando as Lex Luthor, like Heath Ledger as right. the Joker, and then I, I guess Bale might be up there. I'm trying to think yeah. if there's another. I was thinking of the MCU, the best. Others are probably Cate Blanchett as Hella yeah. and Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane, I guess. Yeah. I think those are probably the best ones. And Probably. Yeah, I mean, obviously everyone loves Josh Brolin, but I'd probably put him a peg below those as a performer. Yeah. So, Michael B. Yeah, there, I want but... Gene Hackman as uh, Luthor. Oh, that, that's right. I forgot that yeah. he played him as well. Um, but circling back, yeah, I think Gore... Just in general, the the makeup on him is done so well, you know, just kind of being this like uh, intimidating figure on the edge of a battlefield is able to like come up through shadows, just like very cool. I don't really understand why he gives up that strategy, though, like seems pretty unbeatable. Like he could just pop mm-hmm. up wherever he wanted to should have probably kept doing that. Um, also, classic villain stuff where like you could just kill the, the person, but you have to like talk and like make it dramatic and then they get out. But regardless, I think Bale really shines, like you said, like on the moon, but also that scene where he's like talking to the kids and he like pulls out the snake. And like that, you know, you mentioned like the YTD like flourish. That's a very like Taika type scene, right? Where like he takes this guy who thinks he's like cool. It's almost like a Kirby enthusiasm type thing where he thinks he's like cool or like can fit in, but like it's just being like so like out of place or like awkward and like um, I thought Bale was like really incredible in those scenes and that opening scene as well was great. Um, I loved everything about Gore. I, I wish we were going to get more, but not surprised Christian Bale wanted to, wanted to get in and out of the MCU. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, overall, man, I mean, I just, 
I, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was really fun. Um, I definitely feel like it maybe could have been a little bit longer, but I, I'm not. I have no qualms with an under two hour MCU movie at this point. Like, sure, I'll I'll take some shortcuts if that means I get in and out of the theater in two hours. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I I found some of the pushback on this movie just to be a bit a bit odd because I feel like people are putting all these like MCU sins on this movie's shoulders when I feel like that's the last thing you should be doing to the Taika Waititi self-contained fourth mm. Thor movie you know it just feels a little out of touch and like our frustrations with the unevenness of the MCU on Disney plus <laughs> let's keep that away from this movie that's how I feel about it anyway we'll talk about Miss Marvel next week um yeah, I mean, we might as well end with the post-credits where we get introduced to... We, we learn that Zeus is not actually dead, which I thought was fun. It was nice. Mm-hmm. And we're setting up the future of Thor where Thor's going to be chased down by the gods. We're going to see Zeus's son, Hercules, played by Ted Lasso Emmy winner, Brett Goldstein, and keeps the trend of recent MCU stingers where we basically just learn about casting for the next movie in the series. Of course, Doctor Strange introduced us to Charlie's Thrones Clea and Eternals introduced us to Harry Styles Eros. So and Black Widow actually was supposed to introduce us to Julie Lee Dreyfus's Valentina, but due to release schedules, Falcon actually came out first and jumped that up. But basically it's a new strategy, right? Where like the 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 stingers are introducing us to casting for the next movie in the series and the connectiveness of like the MCU itself it's not there anymore. Remember when we got introduced to uh, like Thanos saying, I'll do it myself, grabbing the gauntlet, or we saw uh, uh, Wanda and Pietro for the first time directly leading into Ultron, you know, like the Mm -hmm. the stingers have kind of moved into a new stage and a new purpose, which is uh, definitely a a choice on Marvel's part. Yeah. So uh, I'm like, I'm like hot and cold on this, right? First of all, I don't know if I get Brett Goldstein, uh, being cast as Hercules just doesn't doesn't feel right to me for some reason. <laughs> Interesting. I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But beyond that, I, where where Thor: Love and Thunder leaves off, I almost feel would be like a good conclusion to the character. I don't think it will be. But Taika said that he would come back if it was going to be something like completely different. I don't know what they're going to get. And to be honest, where where it leaves off with Thor being this father figure to this child is maybe the most familiar storyline that Disney properties have going right now, where, I mean, even Dr. Strange, this character who right. uh, very reluctantly does not want to interact with young people. Most of the time is now put in this father or at least like mentor like role with multiple young people in the MCU. <laughs> so it's like they're going for this very clear strategy of like, kids will like this character and adults will like, will relate to this character and we can just mesh them together and have these storylines bring everybody out. I just don't know. Like, it just doesn't feel fresh. Um, I, I am interested, I guess, to see what love could do, or that, that was what they named the kid, right? Love. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what love could do, but uh, I don't know. It, it, I, I don't know how excited I am to see another Thor movie quickly, you know? Right. Well, I, I definitely don't think it'll be quick. We'll probably learn more about the future of the MCU either at San Diego Comic-Con or D23 this year. Kevin Feige has all but said as much. So we're probably not going to see a Thor mainline film in a while. Who knows if we see him pop up in somebody else's movie for a while, because we've seen a lot of Chris Hemsworth in addition to the Thor movies, of course. But, you know, I think 
it, it, yeah, it is kind of odd that like Hemsworth. I guess it makes sense why Hemsworth isn't running away from this character. Like, it seems like a mm-hmm. nice way for him to just do something he enjoys. And obviously, the the check is nice too. He's not trying to get out the way Downey and Chris Evans did. So, right. where that leaves you though is he is our longest tenured character, who we're kind of playing out the string. I guess with his comic origins, and now we're going to see his relationship with Hercules, which is very storied in the comics. So, yeah, I guess that'll be fun. You know, um, it, it's it's w- whether Taika's one at the helm, though. I think is an open question because Taika, yeah. uh, he has his movie Next Goal Wins coming out soon, which he's already made. But it seems like he still is committed to making Star Wars on the big screen, and is in all likelihood the first person to make a Star Wars movie in the future. So he. And I don't think we're getting Thor 5 anytime soon. And I don't think Marvel's going to rush to pick someone to replace no. Taika. And Hemsworth probably wants to keep working with him, too. So it'll probably be a while. I mean, heck, it's been almost five years since Ragnarok, too. So I'm sure it'll be several years. Which is, like, crazy, right? Because we're talking about the next time we're going to be talking about a Thor movie. And, like, how excited are you for Brett Goldstein as Hercules? And it's like, oh, I'm not going to see him for half a decade. Right. So that's I, why how excited not... can we get, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's kind of, like, it's the other side of, like, these kind of stingers where it's like, are these actually that effective? Because they're not pr- prompting you for what's next. Right. And all of these Marvel Phase 4 movies, with the exception of Black Widow, have largely felt like their own thing. In the case of Shang-Chi, I was very happy about that. I love that film. But, like, you know, maybe maybe it's it's up to the MCU, and we'll find out soon, and we're going to see more of Kang and Secret Wars and blah blah blah. But you know, I think for right now, it just kind of feels like an, an odd strategy because we're like just getting ahead of like casting news and Hollywood Reporter, and that's all this is really achieving. Yeah. You know, because like the real ones who read entertainment news will find out about the casting regardless. Is that really all you want to serve with something, or is it more about the fact that? these stingers actually don't have that much purpose anymore. And that's the best thing they can do with them is just to give you a taste. I don't know. You know, you know, it's funny. Probably one of my favorite stingers ever was at the end of, um, and a lot of people share this, I think at the end of Avengers when they're just eating. Yeah. It's just like, they don't have to, they don't have to make these a thing anymore. If they don't want to, they can definitely, this is, this is a part of their plan that they can definitely about face on and i don't think it's going to be that big of a deal um i, I don't know it's it's interesting to think about where marvel's headed because this is like you said 29th movie we don't really know exactly like what this like overarching stage four is leading up to i don't know yeah. i mean we, we we know kang is in ant-man 3 i feel like that has the best potential to get the ball rolling i'm not expecting much in that realm from black panther 2 Mm-hmm. No, we have the Marvels, Captain Marvel two coming soon. Uh, Fantastic Four and Blade in the more immediate future. So, yeah, we're I, I'm I'm really curious to see what that next slate looks like and like yeah. see like what we're about. Captain America four, another one where like as much as we know about it, the Thunderbolts movie that got recently talked about online. Like we just don't know what that overarching plan is, and I don't necessarily need an overarching plan, but. I think I would rather like confirmation that we don't have one. Yeah. Cause then I, you know, cause like, I a great way to Shang, put it. Chi, Shang Chi makes more sense. Origin 
Thor, mm-hmm. the fourth Thor movie being completely self-contained, definitely unexpected. But in this case, I don't mind it. But I'm just kind of curious about like what what is the rhythm of MCU storytelling going to be? Because and, and how much is Disney Plus affecting this? You know, yeah, time will tell. Well, we'll uh, we'll be talking about them all when they come out. But Dave, we're gonna wrap up there for this week. What do we got for next week? Yeah, so we'll talk about the end of Miss Marvel on Disney Plus, and then speaking of Taika, we'll talk about the premiere of What We Do in the Shadows season four. Very yeah. exciting. And then a lot of music. Steve Lacey, Black Midi, J-Hope, and Lizzo. A lot of good stuff to talk about. Damn, Lizzo's back, baby. Um, we're going to be talking about it all next week. Hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to Twitter at NostalgiaPod and follow us there. And follow the podcast any way you want to through the link tree there. And we'll catch you next week. Peace out. Yeah.